We're live doing the news. Are we going to work on that like intro song? Or? Oh, it's terrible. No, we, we have to at some yeah. point. Right, right now, that's what's holding us back. We have a meeting about the intro song. Like, hey, let's practice. All right, everyone together. Yeah, we, we need an intro song that slaps. And right now, we don't have one. And uh, Can we sing it? Are we singing it? Or are we just having Ryan hit a button? We'll just have Ryan hit a button. I'm sure he's going to record it by now. So yeah. We'll pre-record <laughs> us singing in a button. That would be perfect, right? Can be that. done. Say <laughs> volunteer Ryan for more work. Sure. <laughs> Ryan can do that. <sighs> Ryan has such Ryan, a bad I would like to have me, I'm just thinking, on a set of the Avenger, Avengers <laughs> in downtown New York City when they're tearing it apart. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to have a conversation with the whole. Can you whip that up real quick? <laughs> Your deadline That's easy. Is That's easy. 10 minutes. Your deadline is 10 minutes from now. 10 minutes. I got another button for that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have enough buttons, Ryan? We can get you some more buttons. I might. I might need some more. <laughs> All right, everybody. Time for the news. <laughs> what do you say we, we talk about some ransomware, everybody? Oh, let's do it. New one. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm tired of ransomware. The show is quickly becoming nothing but ransomware. Welcome to the ransomware news. It's the (laughs) ransomware news. We have some technical stuff we're going to talk about. I want to talk about this one first. The Ryuk ransomware that we've been talking about for the past few weeks, it actually looks like they've kicked up their operations, specifically because the United States, uh, working with Microsoft and a couple of other organizations, started attacking the Ryuk botnet ransomware infrastructure. So now they're like literally taking over hospitals and they're like setting the, the ransomware number to be ridiculous, like high into the six figures, knowing that hospitals will not be able to pay, but they have like no poos left to give. They're just basically, you know, watching the world burn because they can. So this is actually a terrifying, this is kind of a terrifying improve, uh, improvement in their strategies and their approaches, because now you're literally going to see people just paying right away because it just takes them burning a couple of the ransomware victims right away uh, to get people to be even more paranoid than they already are. Also, I really like the name, the Russian-based group. They call themselves Wizard Spider, which oh. at least it doesn't have shadow in it. I mean, come on, or Panda. So thank God for that. They at least have a really cool name. Do um, you think they put a series of names on sh- sheets of paper into a bucket and they're like, Wizard? I, I, I think they just that's throw what I would do words. They're like wizard. That's a cool word. Spider. Mm. That's a cool mm. word. And they just pull it out at random. <laughs> cool and then like, spider hat. Wizard. Both together. What's that, Ralph? I said it's a cool word hat, right? You just put a bunch in there. You take one out and you like, you know, take mm. another and put them together. You're like, oh, that'll work. That you know what? We should create a website that's a APT name generator just to make oh, it easier perfect. for them. Yeah. Like we can take every cool word in the English language and then we can generate it. For them, and that'd be could nice. we also add a field on there to for people to test their password strength? Yeah, we can. Yes, yeah, that's a great field, right? It tells you if it's not complex. Absolutely, everything. absolutely. Yeah. Only use your real password, though. No fake ones. No, right? no, no. <laughs> you want to put in your real password or a password you're planning on changing to? Because yeah, 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 no, you want to know before you go, right? Right. Yeah. You want to yeah. know how strong this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, but this is just, like I said, it's a terrifying development in the world of ransomware where basically they're retaliating in mass uh, against U.S. hospitals, which is terrifying. 
Another thing that's terrifying is apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, a bunch of people in Baltimore have their kids at home. You, you guys want to talk about this one a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> so it was Wednesday of last week. My daughter had class. Uh, we, we did a little bit of traveling for Thanksgiving, and she was doing remote school remotely. Yeah, because you can do that. You can do it from anywhere. And that morning, we got a text from the school saying the school is processing through a, a cyber attack of some sort, and there will be no school today. And so we were like, hmm. So we, we went to see if she could log in, and she could not. She couldn't log into her schoolology. She couldn't log into her computer. Her proxies were down. Like, all the things that she used for school were not working. And then later that day, they did the announcement that uh, the entire school system was suffered a ransomware so they attack. Just, they just didn't shut down like administrative systems. They like literally shut down the students' ability to do any schoolwork at all online as well. Potentially, like because you need to be able to proxy into the school's network to be able to use the schoolology stuff. To be oh, able to- so they've shut down the network, so the services yeah. may still be there, but they've shut down the network completely. Then, yeah. Uh, Yes, and like it's at this point, Susie keeps uh, my daughter. Susie keeps like, are is all my schoolwork still there? And I'm like, (laughs) now all of a sudden you care about school, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So I I think it's funny. You know, I'm almost thinking of it. Though they shut down hospitals, man. They shut down schools, so we have to be around our children all the time. That's when people start panicking, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well. The one thing that was nice is that we, we had the opportunity to talk to our daughter because she's like, so why did this happen? Like, couldn't they stop it? And so I don't know if you all want to talk about this, but we we came at it from the, the direction of you're only as good as you're funded. You know, if, if you're not funded for tools, if you're not funded for training, if you're not funded for personnel, if you're not funded for this and you're doing the best you can with how you're funded and all of a sudden you get hit with an attack, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but even with these attacks, the way that they're actually kind of progressing right now is a lot of these attacks just aren't your general run-of-the-mill automated malware that's just going around the internet trying to take over as many systems as possible. You're now seeing actual adversaries running these operations. So there's human beings behind these keyboards. And my fear is that it's no longer something that you can just kind of do this proper hygiene and run the right endpoint security. You're going to protect your network. You're going up against very skilled adversaries. And that just raises the entire level of like security that you have to put in. So you're right. You're only as good as you're funded. But I feel like organizations have been underfunding because they've been trying to protect against automated malware. Where we're seeing these attacks in the hospitals and I fear in Baltimore as well. These are actual like human beings that got involved in this attack. I mean, this is this has had them shut down since Wednesday of last week, you said? So since Wednesday, Wednesday Thursday yeah. was and we kept saying, like, you know, we felt we felt for the the people who work for the Baltimore County Public Schools because they just lost Thanksgiving. They lost their weekend, yeah. they lost Thanksgiving. Yeah. And to attack right before Thanksgiving, cold. to attack a school system right before yeah. Thanksgiving, you're like that's just cold. Yeah. yeah. So and definitely well, out until Tuesday. So. so at least until tomorrow. Yeah. So does that mean you'll find out tomorrow if you go to school on Wednesday or you might get a call that you can go back to school tomorrow? Yeah. So Ralph, what is, what is your thought on kind of the evolution of these attacks and how they're progressing? Yeah. I mean, really the, 
the uh, the heat's turning up, especially when it starts getting money involved, right? So that's really when we're going to get less tools and more people getting involved to try to make you know a living off of this, which is horrible, right? And that's why it's going to keep escalating. The more money gets involved, the more you know you get a bunch of people together, and this becomes a, a job, which is insane. But that's the truth, right? And so uh, I don't feel like it's going to slow down, regretfully, anytime soon. Um, the more money gets involved. So, yeah. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to add is that since it is the school system, like I think a lot of organizations were not prepared for the remote learning. Like all of a sudden it's not about the schools anymore. It's about you going home and taking school at home. So how many other organizations had built their entire security operations center, built all their things around people going to an office, being in a centralized location, doing work in a place And so just doing this to kids trying to learn at home, like all of a sudden you just took out an entire school district by doing one ransomware attack. If you were a nation state and wanted to see the United States held back and their kids (laughs) not learning, this is the way to do it. Well, and it also the impact on the, on the families too, right? Like there's a bunch of people. It's not just their kids are now kind of at home, but now Mm -hmm. a lot of parents have to take time off from work. So it definitely has an impact on the economy. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so, it's just kind of another thing in the bag of suck that is 2020. Yeah. It, also, the other thing, too, is, like, how much money are they hoping to get from the school district? Like, I mean, really <laughs> Yeah, why? Yeah, the people that have to bake sales to buy, like, new... I know, right? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So, I, so I, I don't know if they're going to pay or what's going to happen in the background. But, you know, on the other side, right, think about this. The remediation effort is not free either. That mm-hmm. costs money. That, that costs time, expertise, right, to come in there and fix that. And I have seen, or you know, in red and other situations where people end up paying because they just run the math and they go, well, cheaper just to pay. And, you know, that's that's the other kind of scary part about the whole thing, too. Well, well hopefully, hopefully the kids get back to school soon. But the fact that it was in the news, the fact that it actually made a splash. The other thing that we see in the industry a lot is copycats. So if you look at like, let's look at vulnerabilities and things like Adobe Acrobat, we had vulnerabilities in Acrobat, we have vulnerabilities in Java, you have vulnerabilities that show up in a bunch of these different frameworks. And once attackers identify that there is a vulnerability in a specific area, they pig pile on it. And so you saw a bunch of small credit unions that got hit by ransomware uh, earlier this year, late last year, and it was kind of this pig pile on credit unions. Then the attackers started focusing on hospitals, and that's been in the news because the attackers have realized that, number one, they're soft targets. Number two, there is money there. And number three, they realize that it's so critical that they're going to pay. So my big concern on this is if this actually, if Baltimore ends up paying in this situation, then you're going to see more copycat attacks against more school districts. And we have some friends that actually work at the school district locally. And they're absolutely terrified for ransomware. Going back to Jason's earlier comment, they are like two people that are trying to protect thousands of computer systems. And they're basically, you know, like taking computers that got juice built on them and trying to fix those computers. So the workload is absolutely off the charts. And honestly, the idea of hiring in like a Mandiant to come in and take care of this problem is not something that that's really financially feasible for many of these school districts at all. So we didn't want to become the ransomware news, uh, even though that seems to be the news. So I wanted to talk about one of the topics that's kind of near and dear to my heart is fuzzing. So if you're in computer security, one of the ways that attackers 
and security researchers identify vulnerabilities is through fuzzing. So if you have something like an SSH service, you can fuzz that SSH service input parameters like username and password. And there's a bunch of toolkits that we would use for years like Sully and uh, Immunity has a whole bunch of fuzzers that they've released publicly as well. And fuzzers are cool because you can point them at an application. They'll identify all the different input parameters, and then they're going to shove a whole bunch of garbage and non-garbage characters into those input fields. So you'll be putting in a series of zeros to try to basically attack like string copy terminator functions. You would put in like negative values, positive values, semicolons, colons, stars. These are all things that mean something to a coding language in the effort to try to identify a point where that particular application actually crashes. So this is Fuzzilli, is one that I found on darknet.org.uk. It reminded me a lot of a tool that I'm nostalgic about. Ralph, did you ever play with or ever work with a tool called Dom Hanoi by uh, HD Moore? Uh, No, I, I didn't use that one. So what it did that was really cool is you could point it a browser at it. It was specifically designed to identify vulnerabilities in browsers. And it would take document object models, and then it would basically stack all these different DOM functions on top of each other in a variety of creative ways in an effort to try to crash that particular browser. And it was really, really super effective back in 2006, I think, was when this was first released. And then a bunch of developers of browsers started implementing fuzzing regularly into their different uh, browser software development lifecycle processes. With Fuzzelli, if you have JavaScript that you're actually using in your app, which you are, right? I mean, we see JavaScript everywhere. It allows you to actually go through, identify all of your JavaScript libraries, and then fuzz those libraries. Now, the problem with this is you don't necessarily want to run a fuzzer against production systems because almost all situations where you're fuzzing, you will end up with some type of DOS condition or denial of service condition. At best, at worst, you will crash your application. So you definitely want to run this on a, uh, you would want to run this on a staging environment or a dev environment. But if you're getting started in security and you have some background in coding and development and you're looking for a good start, Fuzzing is a great place. If you want to get into that really advanced exploit dev stuff, every single exploit, every single zero day starts from a crash condition. And the fuzzers identify those crash conditions. And then as an exploit developer, you can actually use things like Bang Exploitable from Microsoft to try to identify whether or not you can get remote code execution. In Fuzzella, you can play with these JavaScript libraries to find that kind of brittle code. And it's just a cool tool. Um, I saw it out on darknet.org.uk and I uh, thought I wanted to share it with people and hopefully people can get a chance to play around with fuzzers a little bit more. Yeah, this looks like it's out of uh, Google's Project Zero. They actually created it, yeah. Yeah, it's Google's not- Project Zero, like finding exploits and zero days in everybody else's products. Uh, oh, so. yeah, they're like notorious <laughs> for finding. I mean, they they light up the industry when it comes to that stuff. There's a lot of stuff yeah. that's found. So. And, and they're brutal. Uh, like the, oh, yeah. if, you're, if you're talking about disclosure, and I think this becomes a good disclosure conversation, a lot of security researchers want to know what is a good disclosure policy when you try to disclose and work with an organization to get a vulnerability disclosure out there. I would say Project Zero has one of the best ones out there. And more importantly, if you want to set up with an organization for coordinated disclosure, you can always point at what Google Project Zero does. So it's not something that you're making up on your own. You're basically saying, hey, I can't remember if it's 60 days. I think it's 60 days. Uh, yeah, um, it's pretty short. Like, you know, uh, and if you ever go through these processes where you talk to a company, they want like a year or, or yeah. two or something. They're like, give us 
give us until you eventually break and possibly tell us what's actually going on. All right. So, <laughs> and many of them, many of them will also send you a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. And I would caution any security researcher: if you're working with an organization to re- release a, a bug, and they send you an NDA, do not sign it. And and the reason why is with their lawyers at these organizations, the way that they look at vulnerabilities, they're not worried about the code or the vulnerability or the issue, the technical issue. They're worried about the public finding out about the vulnerability. So if you sign that NDA, their primary concern has been satiated. They're no longer worried about this public disclosure of this vulnerability. Then they're going to start dragging their feet on it immediately. It also puts a security researcher in jeopardy. Because if you sign that NDA and another researcher finds that vulnerability and they release it semi-anonymously, then they can come back to you and say, hey, you released this because you found this vulnerability, you signed an NDA and it's now out there. So just stay away from you know, like signing non-disclosure agreements. Uh, work, with a, work with a company. Use the Google Zero kind of time frame on how you're going to release this vulnerability and share it with the public. But, you know, it's funny. Like you said, a lot of organizations want like a year to fix something. And yet if it was in the wild and that vulnerability popped up, they would probably have it fixed like probably within 24 hours. So it's this weird dance that you do with organizations as part of vulnerability disclosure. Yeah. And it's also wild too with large organizations, especially like Microsoft and stuff. You'd be surprised how many times and I've been in situations like this where the vulnerability has been disclosed and you're the first one there. And then uh, a couple months later, somebody else discloses it. And now there's a couple people. And then sometimes even it then becomes disclosed in the wild, right? So it's yep. starting to be a- actively exploited. Even though you told them way back then, it- it's wild how this can actually happen and unfold, depending on how long it takes for them to patch it. And honestly, honestly, kind of, you know, I, I haven't done much pen testing in a long time, right? Because I've been teaching and BHIS and active countermeasures and things like that. My world is PowerPoint. But my experience in actual vulnerability disclosure whenever I was working at um, the Northrop Grumman Department of Defense and those things is it was so freaking painful for me going through it with a with a vendor. I literally just got to the point at BHIS, if we find a vulnerability, we hand it to our customer. The customer coordinates that with the vendor, and we just try to stay the hell out of it as much as possible because it is so incredibly painful. Oracle being one of the worst companies oh. to do stuff with, they will just basically mm-hmm. go back worth like 19 times asking for more details before they'll even talk to you. So it's a weird game, but uh, it's a fun one. Technically, I think it's one of the more interesting things in security. It's just kind of a thankless job at the end of the day. And you can't ask for money, right? Because that's... You can't. Well, so that's a fine, that's a fuzzy kind of line. Yeah. Um, Because if you ask for money, it can come across as extortion. Right. Uh, It absolutely can come across as extortion. And unfortunately, a lot of companies, whenever it comes to disclosure, their policy is, okay, well, you, you gave us this vulnerability. Here's a T-shirt and maybe yeah. a Chili's gift card, right? <laughs> and they don't really work very well. Some companies work with bug bounty programs, but that's been hit and miss because a lot of people that work within the bug bounty program are starting to get frustrated because you can share a vulnerability with the bug bounty program. They'll share it with the actual vendor. The vendor will say, no, this isn't an issue. And then they'll secretly go fix the code so they don't have to pay the Mm. researcher. So you have to be very careful which bug bounty programs you actually do work with. I know some companies like Synac are amazing to do work mm. with. They actually do validation of who you are. And other ones, I don't want to get into ripping on companies, are are a lot more difficult uh, to actually get that stuff through. There's actually another avenue, too, that happens as well. And that's where you sell it 
to someone else, right? There's other oh, yeah. organizations that will buy vulnerabilities of very specific types. They have set prices and you can circumvent the entire, you know, disclosure process, right? And and that is a big market out there for these vulnerabilities and then which then they are resold again to other people. So And that's always like weird to me because like the discrepancy between like if you go to a vendor that's willing to work with a bug bounty program or is willing to work with you, let's say that they'll pay a hundred thousand dollars for a vulnerability. I'm just coming up with round numbers, right? Like you get really lucky and you find one of those absolute, you know, unicorn of a vulnerability and like a web service that gets you full access to banking records or everyone's accounts, one of those big ones. I found that if you actually go through those different services, a lot of times, if you could actually work with the vendor directly and get like 100000 or through a bug bounty program, some of those clearinghouses, they'll pay you like $20,000 because they have to resell and they have to yep. do like that retail market on that vulnerability yeah. as it goes through so people don't get paid as much. But like you said, if you can just hand it to somebody, get a check and walk away, there's actually some value in getting your sanity back. Uh, one of the things when we did the live streams for job hunting we'll find that a company doesn't really have a security team. What they have is a mediation team that takes all the bug bounty information that comes in and then just fixes that. So they use the bug bounty program just to find all the vulnerabilities. And then you're being hired to mitigate what's found to the bug bounty program. And, and you know what? I think that there's some value in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a million monkeys typing on keyboards for, you know, an infinite amount of time. At some point, they're going to rock out Shakespeare. And with the bug bounty program, you really do see some forward-leaning vulnerabilities in the areas of, like, cross-site scripting, SQL injection. But what you're finding out is a lot of these bug bounty, like, researchers, what they're going to do is they're going to find a novel technique to attack something like WordPress they're going to find every company that's using WordPress and they're going to reuse that technique on yeah. every single one of those. So you don't find as many people that actually go into a website and do a deep dive or into an app and do a deep dive as you would like to. But those people do exist. There are people that actually put it, put that time into it. But most of the time what they're trying to do is they're trying to find vulnerabilities that have the least amount of effort with the maximum level of reward, which is what anybody would do. Can't really fault them for that. Yeah. There's like four people right now listening like, I can do what? <laughs> I can make good money. There's been multiple Wired articles too about people, you know, turning good money right every year. Uh, you know, disclosing these through bug bounties. I mean, mm-hmm. they're the exception, not the rule, right? Uh, there's a ton of people who spend a bunch of time and don't really make that much. Um, yeah. but, you know, it, it is uh, there is a market for it, and, and you know, are, you are right though. It is it really beneficial to the organizations. It is hard to get it right though sometimes, yeah. uh, especially when it comes to the value and the organizations that participate and all these other fun things. So. Well, and, and it's also, I, I look at this as almost like a leapfrog, like sort of tech, I don't want to say technology, but it is. You have a lot of bug bounty. If you actually check a lot of the bug bounty people, the people that are researching and finding the really cool bug bounties, it's overwhelmingly in places like the Middle East and India and Southeast Asia. So you're reading some just amazing cutting edge research. Because a lot of these people, like you can actually grind away and find a vulnerability in some of these countries and get paid X, where X just kind of sets you up for the year, whereas X in the United States is like two months of living. So Mm -hmm. you have these amazing security researchers from around the world in places that you just normally wouldn't expect like this top tier talent just absolutely knocking it out of the park because they can grind and find these vulnerabilities and the amount of money that they get on it is really worth their time to actually do that. 
So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out moving forward into the future. But I always think that that's cool to kind of look at the socioeconomic breakdown of how this is going to work over the next 10 years. Sort of just imagine if most of our bug bounty hunters are actually in places like India, just because they can afford to do it there. Um, mm-hmm. And how does that change everything moving forward? It's just exciting. Yeah. All right. Is there any other articles? I think that's the last one I've got. Well, welcome to the ransomware bug bounty news for today. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So let's take it out. <laughs>